All right, that's good. We doing good? Hey, don't be afraid to clap. Don't be afraid to clap, whether you're watching online in a watch party in our family gathering or in person. We're so glad to have you. We are in week six of this series called Welcome to the Wrestle. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 27. It's the first book of the Bible looking at this story of Jacob. But before we get there, just a quick thing about our gatherings. This weekend is our last family gathering weekend. We've been doing that for the last several weeks now as we've been gathering together in person as a way for us to get back in person and gather together. And our hope is next weekend to come back to our normal RevKids programming at both of our locations. But that is going to be dependent upon, and I said this last week if you were here, the availability of our team members. And so we're going to have Rev Kids next weekend at still at a limited capacity. You'll have to RSVP, and we'll be able to open up as many rooms as we have team members to open up those rooms in both of our locations. And so if you are a Rev Kids team member and you're still watching at home and you're ready to come back, we're ready to have you back. And maybe you're not a Rev Kids team member, but you're interested in it. You can join our Rev Kids team by just going on our website and clicking on the Join a Team button that's under our events page so that you can become a part of our team, become one of our team members. And this has been such a weird season, and we totally understand that. And sometimes uh, several of you, your job uh, you know, obligations outside of church are preventing you from coming back. We get that. Uh, but as we try to navigate this season and move back into a normal posture, if you will, we're going to have our uh, in-person gatherings in adults like we have spread out. And then our goal is next weekend to have Rev Kids back in a limited capacity, but we need the team members to be able to do that. So if you serve with us, please jump back in. And those of you that are, we're so grateful for you. All right, let's pray before we jump into our text today in Genesis chapter 27 and continue to learn more about Jacob's backstory before we get into the wrestle part. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. And God, as I open up your word, as I preach today, I pray that you would not only empower me to do it in a way that honors you, but in a way that is helpful to us. That is always my goal every week, God, to preach the sermon in, in a way, the scriptures in a way that honors you, but it is helpful to us. Because God, when you help us, that also honors you because you are the helper. You are the giver. You are the one who comforts us. And so, God, I pray that you would do that today. And as we listen to this word, God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear it and eyes to see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 27. Now, we'll get back into chapter 32. In fact, next week, we'll spend two weeks on just the story of Jacob actually wrestling with God. And so we're finally going to get to that, and we'll kind of wrap this series up with that. But I started in Genesis chapter 32, kind of setting the groundwork for the story. And now we've been going back into looking at Jacob's life and what led to the fact that God had to wrestle him, what, what, what God had to you know, wrestle out of him, what God had to wrestle away with him. And the concept, and you're going to see it again today, that we've been talking about for the last several weeks is all of us drink from wells that were dug for us by our parents, and we are now digging wells where, where, that our kids are going to drink from, if you don't have kids, but just people who follow you or people who, who see you or be influenced by you, are, are, you're going to influence them to do the same kind of things that you do. And so the whole premise of this series is 2020 has been a wrestle, but, but we can allow God to use 2020 to wrestle away in us things that don't honor God. And so we've been going back and looking, and I'm going to do it again today. And now we're going to see, 
after Jacob tricked his brother twice. We talked about that last week if you were here. If you weren't, you can go watch that online. And now we're going to see the next part of his story about now how he responds after he did that. So Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. Then we'll spend a little bit of time in chapter 29 as well. All right? So let's jump in. It says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Another way of saying, it's not too long until my dad dies. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. I'll kill my brother Jacob. Now let's stop and chat there for a second. A couple things I want to point out. Obviously, this is a story about Jacob, and he's the primary person in this story. And we're seeing the upbringing of Jacob and how God has to wrestle away. But we're also seeing the interactions of Jacob with his family and learning from that as well. And so we see how Esau here responds to how his brother cheated him. And his brother Esau responds. Remember, his name is Harry. And he also got the nickname that we saw last week, Red. All right. Because he traded in his birthright. And then his brother stole his blessing. So he traded in his birthright for some red Brunswick stew, all right? And then his brother Jacob stole his blessing. And so now Esau's response is, I hate him, and I'm going to kill him when my dad dies. Now, can we all just look at this story and say like, okay, that's a little bit of an exaggerated response. But can you also see how this story and this family and this emotional unhealthiness and dysfunction that's going on in this family is so applicable to how we act in 2020? I mean, if I just simply asked you a question, is there a lot of hate in our society today? Yeah. And what is hate? I'm gonna give you the definition of this. It, it, it's not just this intense anger, because I want you to understand something. It is not a sin to be angry. That's hard for us sometimes, but the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. So it's not a sin to have the emotion of anger. In fact, Jesus got angry. But what is a sin in our anger is when we let our anger control us and it takes it too far. And look at this definition of hate. It's to hold a grudge, to hold hostility towards, to listen to this one, to keep long-term resentment against another, implying, I love how the Bible defines things, a smoldering anger and potential vengeance. Another definition, remember the Hebrew word can have a lot of meanings, to assail, attack, to use physical force against an opponent, to punish or vanquish, to revile, listen to this one, to verbally attack another by insulting and slandering, showing anger and scorn. See, this is the hardest part about being an emotionally healthy person is it's hard for us to feel the emotion of anger and not take it to hate. It's hard for us to feel the emotion where we dislike something, where we disapprove of something, when we can recognize, oh, I was sinned against because Esau was sinned against, was he not? Yeah, he was. He had every right to be angry. 
The problem, though, is Esau takes it too far, and he has this smoldering anger. And it turns into this long-term scheming. I mean, his dad's not even dead yet. And he's scheming in his mind how to kill his brother when his dad dies. Now, that's some messed up family dysfunction right there. And here's why I'm saying this. Because in a crisis, like we said last week, we have to be so careful how we categorize things in a crisis because it will lead us to do things that will just create bigger crisis. In fact, look at the next verse here. Verse 42, but the words of Esau, her older brother or her older son were told to Rebekah. So she went and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself. What an interesting word choice. Comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, this word comfort means this, to alleviate sorrow or distress, to give emotional strength to, to be in a state or condition of finding a measure of relief from sorrow and distress, to be consoled or encouraged, to be grieved. And here's, again, why it's so hard for us to handle emotions properly Because in our society, we do not teach people how to grieve well while not also trying to get even. See, anger in its proper place leads to grief, leads to grieving. He he could be angry about the fact, I mean, angry at himself, grieved at himself, the fact that he sold out his own birthright. And then anger at his brother, he can process those emotions without getting to the point of thinking that his thing that is going to alleviate his grief is getting even. See, this is where we get mistaken. We get mistaken so much in an emotional sense when it comes to dealing with people and dealing with stress We take extreme measures instead of grieving, as the Bible says, as those with hope. We think that in our grief, doing something extreme like getting even will actually relieve us from the distress that we feel. And here's why we're doing this series. This is, and I told you this at the beginning, this is a series about emotional healthiness. Emotional healthiness. And we're learning about emotional healthiness by looking at people who were unhealthy. Because you can recognize and start to grow into emotional health when you can see emotional unhealth. But the problem with so much of Christian discipleship today, this is why I told you last week we're trying to redefine discipleship. So much of Christian discipleship today is just mental or even categorize it as spiritual. And I don't always like that categorization. I understand it's spiritual in the sense that God the Holy Spirit is enabling it to happen, so I'm fine with the categorization on that point, but I don't like spiritual discipleship when it divorces itself from emotions. One of my mentors and and, and guy that I just really love and is is honestly helping us as a church, and I'll, I'll talk more about this next year, shape how we do discipleship 
He talks about emotional healthiness, emotional discipleship, and he has this phrase, Pete Scazzaro, that I love. And I want you to think about it. He says, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It's impossible. It's impossible to say that you're spiritually mature and yet you hate your brother. In fact, 1 John says that, doesn't it? 1 John says it. He says, if you claim to love God, but you hate your brother, the love of God is not in you. See, our, our, let me say it to you in a positive. Our spiritual maturity is only as deep as our emotional immaturity. You may think you're spiritually mature because you know a lot of Bible or you've been in church for a long time, but you get angry at the drop of a hat and fly off at your spouse. Well, you're only as spiritually mature as that. You with me when I say that? Give me an amen, all right? Even online, amen, all right? Now, listen to me. This is not the sermon to elbow your spouse. All right? This is the sermon for the Spirit to speak to you. And here's the point that I want to say to you this week, and it's kind of a follow-up from last week or a continuation from last week. You might want to write this down. We have to be careful how we comfort ourselves in a crisis. We have to be careful how we comfort ourselves in a crisis. See, last week I told you we have to be careful how we categorize things in a crisis. And when we miscategorize things in a crisis, we will look to the wrong things to comfort us in a crisis. It's interesting to me that Jacob's mama says to him, your brother Esau is trying to comfort himself by killing you. Little side note here. If whatever you use to comfort yourself is killing someone else, it ain't of God. Let me say that again. All you addicts or alcoholics out there, all right? If whatever you're using to comfort yourself is killing someone else, it's not of God. See, what's interesting is the only way that Esau can devise to get ahead is to take down. And I talked about this the last few weeks. How, how much of middle school was that? Of being around people that were trying to get ahead by putting you down. And the problem is we got a bunch of middle schoolers in 40-year-old bodies. We got a bunch of middle schoolers mentally and emotionally in adult bodies. Now, before we start throwing stones... One of the reasons why that is, is because that's what was affirmed in us by our parents. Look at the next verse. This is, this is mind-blowing to me. Verse 43. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. This is his mother talking. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Remember, she loves Jacob more. The healthy thing for the mother to do in this circumstance is to go to Esau and be like, Esau, killing your brother is not going to solve anything. The healthy thing to do is to confront, run to the problem. But what does she teach her son Jacob to do? Run away from it. In fact, 
She says, flee. Flee. Here's the definition of flee, in case you didn't know. To run away, escape. I love this one. To make a linear motion or movement away from something. It's like when, when God told um, Jonah to go to Nineveh. He got on a boat and went the exact opposite direction. And God had to send, we don't know if it was a whale, just a big fish to, you know, swallow him up and spit him out to get him to go right back into the right direction. Talk about a wrestle. You see a pattern here? When you and I choose a direction to run from something, it almost always ends in some kind of disaster. And this is what I want you to hear me say. So often in our lives, we're running from something instead of running to something. We're running away from something. We're fleeing something instead of running to something and dealing with something. So there's two ways to comfort here. And I'll show you how Jacob does it in a second, but we're still in Esau. The first way that Esau, he's running away from his own issue, his own Failure to stand up and have integrity and say, no, I'm not going to sell my birthright from, for some stew. Are you crazy? He miscategorizes things. And then he thinks that getting even, that getting back will solve his grief. It won't. It never does. And so he takes anger into vengeance territory. And the Bible is clear. Vengeance is the Lord's. And he'll deal with it in two ways. He'll deal with it either, the Bible says in Romans 13, through the government. That's one way he deals with unjust things, to bring justice. But the problem with the government also is it's run by people, and so it's not always just. And so he'll either deal with the government or he'll deal it with godly punishment in hell. But justice will be served. Vengeance is the Lord's. And so what anger does is it starts to build up into us and it creates this emotional attachment to something that will never solve our real issues. And so what happens to Jake, uh, to Esau rather, is he starts comforting. I mean, think about this. He starts comforting himself with thoughts of killing his brother. Wow, psycho much. Like that became a comforting thought to him. But think about this. We do this all the time. We start comforting ourselves by dreaming of our enemies getting what they deserve. All the while forgetting that we were enemies of God. And if we're in Christ, we didn't get what we deserve. You know, the only thing that will help you deal with grief is not getting even. It's grace. It's grace. You see, Esau has no grace for his brother. He has no grace. And we live in a culture now, people have called it cancel culture, where there is no grace anymore. If you did wrong, you're done. If you did wrong, you're done. And then our response back to that so often is we start comforting ourselves, thinking about ways to strategize and confront that and get back. 
And so we respond to, this is what's crazy about Christians. We respond to people who have no grace with no grace. And I see this all the time, especially in 2020, all these Christians responding back to other people in confrontational ways instead of comforting ways. Where we respond back to graceless situations with no grace. See, that's what grief turned to vengeance and getting back does to you. It turns you into, here's what's crazy, the very thing that you hate. It turns you into the thing that you hate because now you start hating. See, Esau, this is what's crazy, comforts himself with that. But think about this. And I don't know about you, but this has done it for me in 2020. In a crisis, we look to all kinds of things to comfort us. All kinds of crazy things to comfort us. And this is where we have to be careful. Because the crisis was intended. That's what I told you last week. Crisis in Greek is the word for judgment. Literally, the word judgment in Greek is the Greek word crisis. That's where we get our English word. And so a lot of times what crisis is doing, what God is doing in crisis is to either A, bring judgment on something we've done or something, something else someone else did, or the main point is to change our judgments. And, and when I mean change our judgments, I'm, I'm saying our discernment, how we judge, how we see things. So one of the points of a crisis like this is to help us realize, hey, we're categorizing things wrong and we're seeking the wrong things to comfort us. Again, any rational person would look at what Esau just said or what, es uh, what Esau's mama said about Esau and how he's comforting himself by killing you. Any emotionally healthy person would look at that and be like, that's crazy. And here's why we're doing this series on emotional healthiness, because I hope to, by the Holy Spirit's help through the preaching of the scriptures, to create... A I want to give you this phrase, and it sounds like psychological psychobabble, but it's just the Bible. How was that? What I mean by this is I didn't just get it from psychology. I'm getting it from the Bible. But the term is emotional differentiation. And here's what that means. When you're emotionally healthy, you can differentiate emotionally. You can do something that, this is what's crazy, psychologists have found that this is a, a sign of a healthy adult. You can differentiate yourself from it. What that means is this. You can disconnect yourself from it. You, you can distance yourself from it without trying to define yourself away from it. Let me, let me give you another way to think about it. The opposite of differentiation is you're enmeshed with it. See, one of the problems, and this is why I pointed out how his mama responded when his mama said, flee, her response to Jacob was, hey, differentiate yourself from this problem by disconnecting yourself from the family completely. And homeboy's gone for 14 years. We'll get into this more next week. And see, here's what happens to a lot of us. A lot of us grew up in families that were so dysfunctional that we didn't differentiate ourselves from our family. We disconnected ourselves. 
And we started defining ourselves away from them because we grew up so overly connected to them. See, a differentiated person can disconnect but stay connected. But you can be, you know, I always say this all the time, on either side of the road is a ditch. And so if you're not differentiated, you'll either stay too connected to the family because you're too concerned about their opinion of you, so you'll never leave. You'll, you'll never have your own family. You'll never have your own identity. That's the, called enmeshment. You don't know where you end and your parents begin, or your parents end and you begin. You forgot that the Bible says leave and cleave, right? This is when a husband is like, hey, my mama said. Well, let's be honest. It don't really matter what your mama said anymore. What matters now is your new mama, your baby mama. That's what matters, right? And so you're either too close or you're too disconnected. But see, an emotionally differentiated person says, you know what? I'm not defined by them, but I don't want to disconnect from them. And this is, and I can relate to this because I was like Jacob. I'm the younger son. I thought early on that I needed to just disconnect from my family. And and I honestly went too far. And now, by God's grace, again, it's not that I never had a good relationship with my family. I did. But there were just times in my life where I felt like I was the guy that I was like, I got to get out of this town. That was me. And I'm still like that now. I still have this, this sense in me. I just love adventure. I love to take trips. I love all that. And so there's this sense in me that when stuff gets tough, I'm like Jacob. I run. But then you got Esau, who his emotional problem was he was not disconnected like Jacob, but he was overly connected. He was so connected to his brother that he was defining himself by his brother's actions. You see where I'm going with all this? And this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about how we comfort ourselves. We comfort ourselves in the craziest of ways. And a lot of it we learned. We learned from our families of origin. Just like Jacob learned. His mama's like, run. Get away. And so he does. Now fast forward to chapter 29. Let's see how Jacob comforts himself. Jacob comforts himself by doing the opposite, like I said. Where he's running away from his family. In verse 1 of chapter 29, it says this. Then Jacob went on his journey. And came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a, what's that next word there? A well. I just thought that was interesting. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? I mentioned it again today. He came to a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. So interestingly enough, Jacob runs from the wells of his family to another well. To another well, but not one that he dug. Not one that he, by doing the hard emotional work of his deceptive ways, breaking up ground that needed to be dealt with. No, he just ran to somebody else's well that somebody else dug. 
thinking that if he just defined himself away from his psychotic family, that he would actually become healthy. And here's what's funny. And you may not read the Bible like I do in this next part, but, but go with me here. So he shows up at this well, and there's some shepherds there with their flocks, and, and they're, they're not watering. They're not uh, giving their, their flock water yet. So Jacob, being the dude that he is, speaks up. Jacob was one of those people that even if you didn't want his opinion, he was going to give it to you. Jacob was one of those people who had an opinion about everything. Because he was smarter than you, better than you, more deceptive than you. Jacob hadn't learned what James said, because James wasn't on the scene yet, when he says to listen twice as much as you speak. He hadn't learned that. So look at what he says. He said, behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. So he doesn't have the whole context of the situation, but he's speaking into it. Oh, how that happens all the time on social media. He didn't have the whole context. He takes one glance at the situation and speaks. Which side note, that is what emotionally unhealthy people do. Emotionally unhealthy people come to snap quick judgments based on limited information. Happens all the time. But here's what's funny. Watch how he changes his tune. And the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, he was running on and on and on. While he's still speaking, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. In Jacob's mind, you could just imagine goddess. This is why I told you how I read the Bible. Why? Look at what happens next. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, as soon as he saw her, while he's speaking, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Three times it tells you his mother's brother, because instantly he thinks his cousin is hot. Yeah. Three times it tells us it's mother's brother. Which this is why I'm like, my family was just trying to be biblical. My parents are cousins. That's true. But I want you to see what just happened. And look at the next response, verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's, her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Did you see what just happened? Let me tell you if you didn't. This is Pastor Jason's commentary, PJC. So he shows up to the well, sees the three herds and the shepherds sitting there, and he starts telling them what they should do. Remember, snap judgments. And he tells them, now's not the time to come and do this. They need to be out to the pasture. And then Rachel shows up. And what does he do? He goes from telling them what they should do to doing the opposite of what he just told them. He's like, now's not the time to get all, all the sheep together. They need to be out in the pasture. This is high, high day. Why are you here right now? He 
goes from that to as he's talking, he looks up and he's like, oh, he sees Rachel. He sees Rachel coming with flock. He's like, oh, oh, you want a water right now? Oh, let me go roll it for you. Let me go roll open the stone. You want a water right now? You didn't tell me the shepherdess was coming. You didn't tell me she was fine. You didn't tell me that she, even though she hung out with sheep, is good looking. You didn't tell me that. I mean, this is when, and I relate this to my own story because I joke because I was preaching. I was on staff at a church preaching at a college service. And when Lindsay walked into the back door, I'm speaking, but all I hear was angels singing when she walked in. Right, and she was just glowing because at that point in time, it didn't matter what I was saying. So this is what I imagine what's going on with Jacob. Jacob is in the middle of telling them what they should do to when he sees Rachel, he completely reverses course and does the very thing he was telling them they shouldn't be doing. Why? Because Jacob just found his comfort too. Jacob just found his way out from his dysfunctional family by starting his own family. Jacob does what so many men and women do all the time. They leave one bad relationship and jump into another. They leave one bad family and start another. I see this all the time because they think that if I could just flee and forget without forgiving, I can actually produce something that's faithful. And that was four F's right there. That was some, that was some strong alliteration. All right. They think if they just flee and forget without forgiving, they can start something that's faithful. It's like when I've, I've talked to couples and the wife or the husband will tell me, well, they cheated on me. Well, how did y'all's relationship start? Well, it started by that other person cheating on someone with me. Oh, really? And you thought that it was going to go well? Because here's what I know. How you get into a relationship is normally how you get out. Let me say that again. How you get in is normally how you get out without the intervention of the Lord wrestling you down. Because here's what I also know. You can't run from your dysfunction. You can't run from it because here's the problem. And I say this all the time. You take you with you everywhere you go. That's the problem. You. And how you categorize things and the things that you take comfort in. And here's, what I, here's why I laugh. It says, Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Now, side note, is it wrong for a man to show affection and emotion? Heck no. No. In fact, again, ladies, don't elbow your husbands. But I would argue that it is a biblical thing. For men to initiate a kiss and to weep. That's good and right and healthy. But that's not what he's doing here. 
Homeboy just saw her and he's already there emotionally. Like he just saw her. <laughs> and I know it's hot and it's pro he's probably dehydrated. But he got there that fast. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe in love at first sight. <laughs> but I do believe that love is best grown in healthiness. And so he gets there that quickly. Kisses her. Weeps. And then he tells her, you know who I am? You know who I am? I'm kid, not the Barbie doll kid, but I'm family. <laughs> get what I'm doing there? And she runs and goes and tells her father, and then we'll get into this more next week, but he winds up marrying her because she was beautiful to him. And he has to work for her for seven years, and the Bible says it was like nothing to him. Now, you may look at that and think, oh, what a love story. But ladies, I would say be careful of a dude who's an emotional wreck. Because that's what he's going to produce in you and in your family. See, here's the problem. Esau comforts himself in trying to take someone away. And Jacob comforts himself by trying to bring someone close. Now, is getting married a problem? No, it's a good thing. But here's the difference. Esau is doing a bad thing or wants to do a bad thing. And it's so easy to see the evil in that. But Jacob wants a good thing. But he elevates it to a God thing. And then that's just as evil. See, here's where emotional healthiness really starts to get deep. When you're 16, it's easy to decide whether or not you want to do drugs. Now, you may think that that wasn't an easy decision for you. But, but what I'm saying is, like, no one would say, well, that's a good, wise, godly decision. Like, it's easy to see the evil in that. It's easy to see the evil in killing somebody. That's easy. And so when you first start out, you're making decisions between good and obvious evil. But the further you walk with Jesus, you have to make more deep decisions where you have to have more discernment because the decision won't be so presently evil. It might be a good thing like a marriage, like a relationship, like a job, like an investment. It might be a good thing, but it becomes an evil thing when we elevate it to the point where we are looking for it to emotionally comfort us. You with me when I say that? And that's why God has to wrestle us. We'll get into this more next week when we jump back into Genesis 32. But I'm going to leave you with this. Part of the wrestle of what God is doing is not only trying to change how you categorize things, but change who you take comfort in. 
See, part of 2020 was about destroying your idols. Maybe it was the idol of wealth, the idol of health, the idol of job status, the idol of relationships, all good things that you elevate to God things. Let me give you one last verse and we're done. Second Corinthians one. I do have this one on the screen. Verses three and four. Paul says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all what? Let's try that again. And God of all what? Comfort. Comfort. Who, what? Comforts us in all our afflictions so that we might be able to, what's the next word there? Comfort those who are in any affliction. With the, what's that next word there? Comfort with which we ourselves are what? Comforted by God. How many times do he say that? Five. Five times in two verses. You think Paul's trying to drive a point home? What is he saying? If you try to find your comfort in anything else outside of God, you will always be disappointed. I love my wife, but she's not my God. If my happiness rests on her, it will crush her. I love my kids, but they're not my God. If my happiness rests on them, it will crush them. I love my job, but this is not my God. Because if my happiness rests on this job, y'all are some messed up people. You see, I love my church, but my happiness is not based upon the church because it's a horrible God. See, Our comfort has to come from someone who is eternal. Because if it comes from an eternal place, it will always spring up in any crisis. It will always spring up because it will never go dry. And you want to know, here's the test. You want to know one of the primary ways you can tell if you're comforted by God? How do you respond to other people who need comfort? See, we're facing a lot of crisis in 2020. And one of the saddest things to me as a pastor, and I'll go a step further to me as a Christian, has been watching so many Christians be confrontational instead of comforting. Because God doesn't always call me to confront somebody. And and just a word, if he does, it will be personal, not public. But he does call me to comfort everyone. In fact, what he tells me in this verse is that's why he comforted me. He comforted me so that I will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Again, I said this last week, what if God brought the crisis for the church to stand up and comfort people? And you don't know if you can really comfort somebody until they vote differently than you. What if our first response is not telling them how they're wrong, because that never convinced anybody. 
but saying, you know what? Let me listen to you. Let me not be like Jacob and show up to the well out of context spitting what I think. What if we just listened and then we lamented? We said, you know what? I may not agree with you, but I can see how you see that. And I'm, I'm here to comfort you. You know the old saying you get more flies with honey or bears, whatever it is. You know what it is. I say these things and then I think about it. Then with vinegar. Christians, we will get more people with comfort than we will confrontation. Because I don't know about you. What I need in my affliction is someone to comfort me. And the whole reason why God brings affliction or allows affliction to come is so that he will and can and does comfort me. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 15, 16, 17, he said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he will comfort you. So if you're here today and you've been going through this crisis and you've been looking to the wrong thing or the wrong person to comfort you, I got good news for you. God is here and he will comfort you. And then when he comforts us, let's move out as missionaries into the world and see ourselves as chief encouragement officers, chief comforters that are here to comfort people in any affliction without first trying to confront them, but just comfort them, just listen to them, and then love them, then challenge them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being the God of all comfort. And that you allow affliction to come because crisis shows us who we really are. What we run to first in a crisis is our God. What we run to first in affliction is our God. And if it's not you, and that is sin, even if it's a good thing. And so, God, I pray if there's anybody here or listening or watching that has never been comforted by Christ, not realizing that you came and took their affliction to give them comfort, compassion, grace, mercy, all the things they don't deserve. I pray right now that you would save them and comfort them. I'm looking around or talking as we close, but if you want to receive Christ, if you want to receive the God of all comfort, then you can be saved and God will comfort you. He will save you. He will fill that void that you've been looking to everything or everyone else to fill. So if that's you, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. You can, it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son to take on my crisis, to take on my affliction, to comfort me, 
Give me an eternal love, an eternal joy. So I ask you to forgive me. I'm trusting in Christ alone to comfort me. Again, nobody looking around or talking, even if you're online or at a watch party or family gathering, if you just trusted Christ, we want to know about that. And all of you in just a moment will have an opportunity to text us and let us know that. But if you're in one of our physical locations, you can just simply lift your hand and let us know that because we have a gift we want to give you. Thank you. But then those of us who follow Christ, The Bible says, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so in this season of crisis, let's not only categorize things correctly, but let's get our comfort from the right places and the right people so that we can move out into the crisis and comfort those who are suffering in afflictions. And again, I can guarantee you those people will not look like you or vote like you. But you should be so motivated by love that you're willing to step out into other people's afflictions to comfort them. God, I pray that not only we would be the kind of church that always exalts you as the comforter, but empowers others to go out and comfort. So thank you for loving us. And God, help us to move out into the world with that love. And comfort others in their affliction because there is one thing that this world needs right now, and it is you. It is the God of all comfort. The, the God that people can know that they don't have to take vengeance because you will. That you are working your plan and you will bring justice. You will bring hope. Pray that we're that kind of church, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you.